When you're talking to somebody that has authority that should because of their place, their role or responsibility, or, and you walk in there and they don't listen, the person feels voiceless. For somebody to go, you have a voice and I hear it. And people feel seen. It is the foundation of humanity. It is the thing that makes us do the most amazing things in the world when we recognize humanity. And when we see that others are dehumanizing others, that righteous indignation that comes up, that wells up inside somebody that says, no, 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 no. That is not how we treat humans. That's why we make rules about war, because we're like, look, we're going to have to do this. We're, we're going to have to kick your butt. But in the midst of doing this, this is the line that's too far. And we all are going to agree we're not going to do this. This, this indignifies humanity. I'm Corey Weathers. You're listening to Military Culture Shift, a limited series podcast on the impact of war, money, and generational perspective on morale, retention, and leadership. Chances are, if you've been in the military community for any length of time or have been watching the news lately, there are a lot of concerns about whether the military has changed. While the media and politicians want to focus on shifting military standards, there is a much larger shift we should be talking about. Headlines have been steadily increasing over the past decade with stories that suggest there are some internal cultural concerns in the military community. Are they a true picture of what's unfolding within? Or has the increase of technology and social media simply made what has always been there more visible? My book, Military Culture Shift, unravels some of the deeply complex and interconnected variables that contribute to some of the issues we are seeing today, including retention, recruitment, and declining morale. One very big variable is the younger generations entering the community with new values, expectations of what the military lifestyle should look like, and of course, work ethic. With millennials and Gen Z redefining long-standing definitions of authority, trust, and even the way we communicate, leaders today are struggling with whether to mold the next generation or evolve with it. To dive a bit deeper, I invited my husband, Matthew Weathers, an active duty army chaplain to share some of the backstory of military culture shift, as well as what it was like to support me through the writing process. We also cover some of the key points of chapter one, including what it means to be a ground level leader and whether or not we are willing to walk among the rubble. So um, I thought it would be really good for the first episode to really talk about the background mm -hmm. of writing Military Culture Shift. I get a lot of questions about authoring books, writing books, um, my opinion on whether or not you should publish or self-publish and it's, um, I even didn't know what the life of an author was like or what that's, and I think it's different for everybody, but you are, you know, mm -hmm. my husband and have supported me so much through all of this over the, the last couple of decades yeah. that, um, I really just wanted to, I think at first give a little bit of background of why, 
I decided to write this book in the first place because really it came from so many conversations that yeah. you and I have had, mm -hmm. you know, over coffee. Um, every single day of our lives. Probably every single day. Every like single day. Whether we go for a walk mm -hmm. or whether we on a Saturday morning are talking about the week that we've had. So maybe we should start off with sharing a little bit for those who have not had a chance to get to know our background a little bit, share a little bit about us. Um, I'm a mental health clinician by trade. Yeah. And um, I always knew that I wanted to go into counseling. My career has evolved into more consulting and obviously writing and speaking since then. But I remember you came and came home one day. You had met a Green Beret soldier in the gym yeah. when we were in seminary in graduate school. Um, and you came home with this new idea of joining the military. Yeah, because for the longest time, I just appreciated, I wanted to make complicated ideas simple. And so I thought, you know, as most people, when you get into college and you get an inspirational professor, you think, I want to be that for someone else. So that was the trajectory we were on. Then we left one seminary, went to another one. I met a guy, um, his first name was Mark, and he had a green beret. And I was like, so what is a guy with a green beret tattooed on his bicep doing in a backwoods Kentucky seminary? <laughs> and uh, at that point, he told me about the chaplaincy. And I became this convergence of you know my love for people and the want to minister to them from a, from a faith perspective, as well as my love for outdoors, which has since waned, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, the Army's cured me of that. Um, it, you going off to basic was the best thing that's, I think, ever happened to you other than your family, mm -hmm. you know, and just um, shifting your perspective on you really leaning your talents in, in a beautiful way to serving this ama amazing tribe. Yeah. And I fell in love with it, too, especially mm -hmm. once we went to Fort Carson, Colorado for our first assignment. Um, just the people, just yeah. the experience of this incredible tribe of people that um, has common values. The realness, the authenticity, yeah. the love, the hospitality, the devotion, the selflessness, all those things. It just became um, a community. It became uh, our people group. It really did. Yeah. It really did. And it it definitely shaped my career path. It's, mm -hmm. I wanted to, in my own way, but also with you, kind mm -hmm. of come alongside how do we serve this community as a team. Yeah. Um, so I took off on the clinical side of that. Mm -hmm. And over the years, whether it was me working with someone in the counseling office and obviously not sharing their their more personal things from the counseling office. Your impressions, trends both both and, of us, because we both have confidentiality. So we don't like come home and we're like, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe. But we we bounce these trends off one another to go, this is this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm personally experiencing. As we, and especially you, collected data over the years and we saw these trends and we we're like trying to figure out like, where are people at and what do they need? Not what do we want to give them, but what do they need? Yeah. What are we generally experiencing within ourselves? Um, and then what are we watching in those? And uh, I've watched you for the past two years, this fire really just grow mm -hmm. this, um, this passion for not just truth telling and hope giving, but wanting to like make this more present out there so that people can understand what's actually going on. And I think um, in the in the mental <clears throat> health world, so much is about <clears throat> communication and yeah. truth speaking. And, and we can't make progress mm -hmm. in healing or moving forward or getting unstuck with things mm -hmm. or, or achieving goals without good communication and telling the truth and just saying what is. Yeah. And I think no. that was one of the frustrations that I was having is, 
you know, we would have these reports coming out of yeah. these singular issues mm-hmm. of whether it's sexual harassment or mm-hmm. a toxic leader or suicide rates yeah. or, you know, all these. And and I think the DOD has done the best that they can to address these as they were coming out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's a very big institution. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's changing systemic issues within mm-hmm. an institution. But I think I was getting frustrated because just like people coming into the counseling office, there were like some some really important truths that needed to be talked about yeah. in order for us to get better. And yeah. that's what I think was kind of, in your words, shut up within me yeah. that there was clarity that needed to happen. And ultimately, I felt like people are, are missing the story. Well, I think what became different that started all this when we moved from Carson to Stewart, that's when the culture shift happened. Yeah. That's when it started. And we came in luckily on the tail end of this, you know, family building, you know, we were doing life together and you track all that beautifully through the book. Well, I think for me, I think that's what was the fire in my bones that you were talking about was just the need to tell the story and bring clarity Mm -hmm. to all these trends and issues that I know we were both seeing Mm -hmm. um, as we were working with people. And we had talked about them over time as as the culture itself seemed like it was going through a lot of shifts. Yeah, it was a constant going back and forth of what are we like what are what are the all the components to it? And it grew over time because when we initially started, we were just, you know, I was a captain and we were just starting. We didn't know all the different components, po- components that go into the complexity of this whole thing. And then over time, we would bring in and go, oh, this is another thing I'm hearing. This is another thing I'm hearing. And, and something that became pivotal was when we were in Colorado, we were going through a difficult time together with a lot of other people. And it was a mass deployment. So it was the R4 gen cycle. And you explain that in your book. Um, But the shared, for lack of a better term, suffering Mm -hmm. that everybody was going through um, and that we were all open about Mm -hmm. that, that brought people together. Mm -hmm. Right. And but over time, as that community started to dissolve and we saw that when we left Carson to Stewart, as it began to dissolve, people weren't talking about what they were going through. Yeah. People were on different deployment cycles. People, you know, people were having these vastly different experiences over time. And they were all online. And they were all online. And, and by not sharing that, not knowing it, by not being open about it and honest with it, because you talk about being honest, telling your story, um, people think they're alone. Mm-hmm. And that's the key thing that I love that you do in the book of going, you help people go, look, you're not alone. And so in a counseling set- session behind closed doors, when people are telling the truth of what's going on in their life, they think they're the only one experiencing it. Right. Isolation can drive people crazy mm-hmm. because it, but it's sometimes it's a self-imposed isolation. It's a, it's a fake isolation. But once you, once people start to go, oh, wow, I'm not the only one. You know, and and you and I over the last several years started to see a lot of people thinking they were the only one. Yeah. And I I think I took that for granted because we do work with so many people and we are seeing these trends Mm -hmm. and we know like from session to session or from speaking engagement to speaking engagement, these are the common issues that keep popping up everywhere. But I've had people actually reaching out to me who have read the book already and they're going, I thought it was just my perspective that it shifted. And I think even though that's why I wanted to write the book, it's just to tell the story. I think I'm still surprised and realized that I didn't know how many people did not have their stories validated who Mm -hmm. may feel like 
their experience of of growing increasingly more lonely yeah. in this culture or wondering why things aren't working out mm-hmm. the way that they did before. Or maybe you're just now getting leadership positions and people aren't showing up and it's not you. Yeah. It's, it's the broader culture that's shifted. Yeah. And telling the truth and letting people hear the truth from other people yeah. helps them like it calms them. It's like GI Joe knowing is half the battle. Once they know they're like, okay, cool. Now I can do something about it. And I think there's been a fear on, on some, with some people probably that if we don't talk about the difficulty, if we don't talk about the struggle, if we don't talk about the, the shared suffering, um, then either it'll go away. Like, like it's like, we shouldn't talk about it because it'll make it worse. But the not talking about it is what makes it worse. And then let's also be clear that what we're talking about here isn't just about war stories, right? right? This is about what it means to be in this culture and this lifestyle, what it means to be a family member, to go through COVID as a military family Mm -hmm. or go through being apart from external family members Mm -hmm. um, when you wish that you could fly home easily, but you're maybe Oconus. Like this is about being in the culture, the service population, um, in in your words, having a vocation yeah. that is about sacrifice and serving others and serving your country and um, and your story right. being in this culture. And oh. that's why it's called military culture shift, not only because it, it has shifted mm-hmm. and there's lots of things that have shifted along the way, but what does it mean to be a part of this culture and how yeah. your story is unique? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk for just a minute about... Um, I remember, I don't know if you remember the day that you were like, I think it's time for you to write this book, <laughs> which you have these ways of I dropping. mentioned stuff in passing and I'm really sorry. <laughs> I know. You, so. He has a way of just saying, I think you should do this. And then I'm like, and no, I'll just walk off. <laughs> you do. It's just a little tic-tac of a comment. <laughs> but uh, there was, it's actually was in uh, an important part of my career where I had the space yeah, and I also had so much in my head from collecting it over the years. It was time to, that's what I was seeing. Like, you know, you and I both get tired of hearing each other. Like we'll let each other go on our crappy first draft for a very long time. And thank you to Brene Brown for, for that phrase. That's spoken so much truth into our life. Yeah. (laughs) So we're like, okay, I'll let you go on. You can go on, you go on. But eventually we look at each other. We're like, okay, so what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Right. And I think that's what it was. It wasn't like, you know, you need to shut up and do something about it. But I think I had seen all these things and like you had to get it out of your head. Yeah. And then once you actually sat down, which, you know, whenever you post a picture of what your whiteboard used to look like, um, that's how nerdy we are. Side note, like <laughs> I was deployed and gave my wife a, a six giant. foot rotating giant whiteboard on wheels <laughs> to which she was like, when am I ever going to use this? And if you looked at this thing in her office, you'd be like, oh, yeah, like there's stuff on both sides. <laughs> like she has gotten the goodie out of this whiteboard. Right. It's so true. So but once you finally started unpacking it, and putting on the whiteboard, I think you were surprised. I imagine you were surprised. At how much you were trying to keep track of in your brain and how connected it was. And to talk about the strength finder, you have connectedness. Yeah, number one. Number one strength is connectedness. And I think this was the first time I really 
saw those strengths of kind of really all pull together into one project. So the learner capturing all the data and all the information um, and then all of the relationship building strengths that usually are channeled into counseling, really Mm -hmm. looking like zooming out and looking at the culture and what does it mean? I almost envisioned if the culture was coming into the counseling office as a family, you know, you've got all these generations, you've got all these personalities, you've got all these perspectives and they come in and they, and usually in a first session, the first thing you hear is here is all the stuff that's not going right. Yeah. And it's like, we've got a recruitment issue. We've got sexual harassment issues going on. We've got, you know, military kids that are struggling. There's just all this stuff that's going on. Mm And usually as a clinician, the first thing you do is you write down all of those issues and then you say, tell me your story. Tell yeah. me how we got here. Actually, I think you are better trained. Um, I think you just did a basic genogram. And for people that don't yeah. know what a genogram is, when you do family systems therapy, you have somebody actually draw out all the people in the family. And then there are specific ways that you draw lines from one person to the next to show how they are connected. Is this a close relationship? Is this a strained relationship? And once you do this beautiful genogram, uh, I mean, to standard, you can kind of stand back and look and go, oh, that's why I am the way I am. And it's only until somebody goes back like two or three generations. To look for those patterns. To look for those patterns that people have been locked in. And in the counseling session and the, the world as a clinician, you have this keen grasp of being able to see patterns that other people don't pay attention to. Yeah. And you're able to go, you know what? Don't you think you kind of been doing this for I, these reasons? I love it. Yeah. I love looking for patterns, whether it's in in our current circumstances mm-hmm. now. I mean, I, I <clears throat> kind of equate that to like if I'm working with a couple, what are the current patterns that we're in and are they unhealthy? And can right. we adjust them? Oh. But I actually love going back and looking at different generations and the patterns that are passed down because I think it relieves some of the stress and anxiety of yeah. the present to uh-huh. go, oh, we're, we are continuing beliefs and thoughts and patterns yeah. that we don't even sometimes know why, right. why those exist. Yeah. So for example, you know, everybody listening, you'll read in the book. I, that's one of the reasons why I go back to World War One, World yeah. War Two, when we have this, this clear moment where the, the government had to decide, do we let married men into the draft? Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest, and this was huge, and we've heard this before, but when yeah. you hear it in the context of the story, to hear that um, one of the biggest reasons why they were hesitant to bringing married men into the force is, is the concern that families would become dependent on the government no. financially and benefits-wise, and would the government yeah. need to provide for them? Yeah. And you fast forward to now, and, yeah. and I think that's one of the biggest issues that we're having now is that... Um, we have over 2 million military service members and their families to take care of. And I think it's um, more than the DOD can keep up with. Right. And when you talk strategy, there's this tension in between the five meter target and the 2000 meter target. And what I mean by that is there, there are things like when they're trying to make that decision of, do we let married men into the draft? When you need that many people, you just have to go, yeah, like just I just do the basic math. And we'll figure it out. And, and and you know what? That's a future, to quote Homer Simpson, that's a future me problem. Mm-hmm. And you can only inherit so many future me problems until you're like, wow, huh? Like we were too busy with five meter targets. You know, I'm you're trying to run a deep, long strategic, like, what is this gonna look like in 30 years? While I'm also trying to, oh, solve the problem that just popped up on my desk first thing Monday morning. Yeah. And um, we're, you know, 
We're not staffed for that. And too many people are like, it's just the speed at which decisions are attempting to be made across the board in the world nowadays um, can prevent anybody from doing, sitting and doing a deep think long-term, you know, strategic thing. And what's fascinating is like, you could do as much deep think as you want about a long-term problem, but the enemy gets a vote. And so you could sit there and go, I know exactly what this needs to look like. And then Tuesday rolls around and the enemy got a vote and you're like, huh, well, that changes all the calculus. Yeah. And that's the difficult thing is like, you've got to, you have to internalize this awareness that you, that you detail perfectly through the book. You have to internalize that and live in it. Like it has to become part of your own self-knowledge as much as you, you yourself as a human know yourself walking through the world. I like, I am the son of such and such and such and such. And these are my life experiences and you can interpret yourself, but the military culture is a, is an entity in and of itself that has to be interpreted from all these various lenses and experiences, all these reactions that we've had to have that people have absolutely done the best they possibly could in the moment, which leads us to the now of here's where we're at. Like here's what we've inherited now what? Now what? And so maybe this is a good opportunity to just kind of vision cast um, how people can read the book and mm-hmm. um, and maybe what this podcast can be about. And I'll kind of share my thoughts. And, and you've been yeah. kind of watching all of this unfold from your perspective and you can That's share little. yours. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a whole other episode on, you know, I mean, I'll just say writing the book was um, an interesting experience. Before I get to vision casting, it was yeah. um, kind of like a Jackson Pollock season of six days a week, nine hours a day, I'm, I think, of writing and you delivering food sometimes to my desk, yeah. coffee, lots of coffee, um, and so much understanding and grace. But yeah, I have to make I have to make the note that right as you were finishing, and you wouldn't say this, right as you were finishing, you were like, you were typing so much so furiously that your your arms started cramping. They did. And you were literally like using one hand to hold the other hand to type letters with one finger. <laughs> it's true. I mean, and there was, that's why I'm like, you were, it wasn't just like, I want to write a book. It was a compulsion. It was. At some point sitting back and watching it, it was like a, this person is like exercising this spirit out of themselves (laughs) to get this done and get this out there out of love. Because when you're in the counseling session and I keep going back to your role as a clinician, there's only so much you can internalize without feeling like I have to do something. Yeah. And that's especially when you're hearing it from everybody. It's the birthplace of great advocacy when you're like, I am getting all the voices and now I need to give voices to those voices. Yeah. No, I, I actually, for the first time in my life, experience the limits of my brain. Yeah. Similar to how a marathon runner talks about hitting the wall at mile, what, 2022. Mm -hmm. Like I remember my brain Mm -hmm. Feel like physically feeling my brain yeah. talk to my fingers and tell them to move. Like I was like, this is a whole other level yeah. of tired. Yeah. But I think too, that's just for those of you who are curious about, you know, what does it take to write a book? How how weird did it look? <laughs> it looked very weird. <laughs> um, but I will say um, there was a rush to get it out now because everybody is needing some of these um, conversations <clears throat> to start. And so I yeah. think that that is the goal. That's mm-hmm. what I want people to know about this book is that this is an opportunity for you to 
just really sit back and understand the whole story, understand the complexity of the problems yeah. that we have so that we can start conversations like this and then create some solutions. Yeah. I am not um, one to say that I have all the solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think even if I tried to offer them, you know, I could put them out today and tomorrow they might be irrelevant. And so I think it's a, it's a time to pilot new ideas, yeah. to have bigger, broader conversations and, and to introduce the complexity that we've got to be careful to be too quick to solutions because yeah. I think you'll see in the story that there are some some things that ha decisions that were made quickly without mm -hmm. um, a lot of thought mm -hmm. and we were dealing with the consequences of those and mm -hmm. so really it's how do we listen to the whole story see the complexity so that when we get into these conversations we are right. kind of showing up to the table with an educated perspective I think in it's interesting when we talk solutions, we usually talk program, we, we talk things that we can implement, talk things that we can measure or, you know, quantify. We, I mean, we're measuring everything. And to go back to one of my favorite books, uh, Failure of Nerve and talking about the graveyard of data, we can measure all these things in order to provide a solution. But the thing that really comes through in your book, and, um, and I've read it twice, probably two and a half times, um, is that one of the biggest parts of the solution is awareness. And living in that awareness, there's a self-awareness, there's an awareness of the other, there's awareness of the system that we're all in and living in respect to an awareness of that, mm -hmm. that, that this is a, this is like a almost living, breathing entity that you have to, you have to deeply understand. Yeah. And it's only until you get to, unfortunately, sometimes certain levels that you go, holy cow, like. You know, I don't just work for that person. I work for this person and we work for these people, but this is dependent on that. And like when this shuts down over here and it's like this here. big, great equalizer where if you move one lever, there's too much base, too little treble, and it throws it all out of whack. And you have to be aware and live in respect to that. And then maybe even definitely bring people up and, and if they don't have that awareness to give them that awareness, because sometimes just knowing brings people peace, even if they can't change it, they just know. Yeah. And it, like you said earlier, whether it's just knowing that your story is similar to other people's mm -hmm. stories, or maybe it's, you're going to read the book and feel like your story is not what's reflected in the book, but that it's someone else's story right. and that you can um, accept that, that mm -hmm. it's okay for everybody to have these different stories. Yeah. So I wanted to write the book in that I had several people in mind when oh. I was writing the book, I was thinking about those in military leadership positions mm -hmm. that they, as they go into leading others, that they would be able to have this kind of cultural analysis mm -hmm. um, of, of the people that they're about to serve before they walk in. Mm -hmm. um, I had their spouses in mind because spouses are still taking on volunteer lead roles or investing in the community. So I yeah. wanted to write for the military leader in a way that, not only can I speak your language, but also um, give you or think through some of those um, some of those topics that maybe you haven't had a chance to really um, run to ground. Yeah. And also for the spouses to be able to read it and not be over their head in complete military jargon. Right. But also for civilians and policy leaders to also, or even if you're in academics, to be able to read a book and understand, you know, the complexity of the Department of Defense and the people that work within it. Right. So that you can make decisions in advocacy and yeah. policymaking um, and 
how it involves our defense budget, like yeah. all of those things. So I had all of those people. In it mind. really takes away the assumptions. So when we talk in military planning, you begin with assumptions. You have some assumptions and you have to determine whether those are a fact or not. So you can continue planning. And I think my eyes were open just, you know, within the past couple months for something else I was doing at work. I found a uh, a congressional primer on the Department of Defense. And it was this beautiful 16, 18 page document that's unclassified that just is like, so, so you're so you're in charge of telling the military what to do kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in Congress. You're in charge of telling the military what to do. Here's what that is. Here's here's what the Navy looks like. Here's a brigade combat team. Here's the vehicles that are in there. And it was I mean, it was very rudimentary. And it only occurred to me then I was like, oh, this is stuff that I've taken for granted because yeah. I've lived it yeah, or because I've taken a class on it yeah. that I sit there and go, yeah, I know what a MAGTAF is, right? Um, and if that's mentioned in Congress and they're like, oh, we're going to send a MAGTAF over to the PACOM, I could, you know, a new congressional person who has no military experience may go, uh, what with the who and yeah. where? Yeah. But when you unpack like you have, not the uh, the the Legos, but the story, yeah. the the essence of this people group, this tribe, the experience. I think then people can go, oh, like that's who I'm dealing with. Yeah, it's it puts, about who. It puts a name and a face to a uniform or to a. A, a military house on post. Yeah. When you're talking about a military spouse, it's no longer just, well, the military spouses, you're talking about, you know, Karen, or you're talking about Krista, you're talking about, you know, Evie, you're talking about people with names yeah. and yeah. stories and hurts and pains and joys and disappointments and loves and dreams and hopes and goals. But the thing that unites them all is they want that community tightness they want to see it thrive they want their service member to thrive yeah they themselves want to be able to fully express who they are in the world so it's just this it, it's amazing how complex it is and how beautiful the tapestry you've been able to to weave through the book i don't know if i'm talking the book up enough but you're I, awesome <laughs> well i mean literally i mean you know there was a video you posted of me crying um and uh you know as i get older i get softer and that's okay <laughs> but um it just was like, I mean, I've always been impressed with you as a human, not just as a woman, but just as a human. And um, and you you just did an amazing job. You did an amazing job because there were parts that I could read where I was like, my story is getting told. Mm. And to be able to sit back as a service member and feel like this is what I have lived and had to be oftentimes quiet about, silent about, not have an opinion on. Um, or to go, you know, people just don't get it. And it's hard to help other people that haven't lived it get it. But this is, it's like you said on the news this morning, this is a national thing. It's, it's national ownership. Yeah. Thank you for all of your kind words on that. Um, for those who have read chapter one, I yeah. thought today would be a, also a really great opportunity to kind of expand a little bit on chapter one. Mm -hmm. Um, one, a couple of things that um, that we'll just kind of address from chapter one is there's a, a little bit of talk of like, how do you describe or define a generation? Because I definitely talk with generational labels yeah. throughout the book um, just to talk about how 
each generation, their motivations, their values, maybe the reasons why they would have joined the service in the first place, but also how these different generations have come into the military culture and shaped the military culture, given that they have different motivations and values. And so um, we're going to talk a little bit about that and then also about um, how the chapter one ends on leadership um, and kind of vision casting you know, what is um, what is that person-centered leadership? If we're going to talk mm-hmm. about this culture and who is in the culture and the story behind the culture, um, how do we lead from a person-centered perspective? Mm-hmm. So um, we, you and I talk a lot about different generations. We talk about, we have two Gen Z kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I substituted in the high school to help out, but also get some Gen Z data, which yeah. was fun. Um, and we also, one of one of our sons is now um, a sophomore at Texas A&M. He's in the Corps oh, of Cadets. And so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and he's also thinking about joining the Air Force and is one of those Gen Z waiting on a waiver yeah. because of a health condition he had when he was five. <clears throat> right. right. Like it's, it's ridiculous. So we are living this also personally. Yeah. Um, and it was also fun at times to run um, some of the Gen Z data by both, you know, not only my kids, but other kids and other even older Gen Z and and those that are even already in. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk in there about generational differences. And I think the first thing that I want to just address, and I mentioned this in chapter one, is that Pew Research um, recently came out, I think it was in 2023 this year, where they are not going to use generational labels as much. They're not going to say Gen Mm -hmm. Z, millennial, um, really because some people do feel like you're putting me in a box and and honestly, you and I um, could could say the same by our birth year. We are Gen um, Gen X, but right on the line of Gen X millennial. Um, We're called Zennials. Z- yeah. And there's these in-between labels yeah, too, yeah, which yeah. brings up, you know, I hear that from people too. Yeah. I'd really try to stay with um, just the general generational labels and not the in-between ones because yeah. I wanted, I didn't want to have <clears throat> confusion there. Um, and I really, I just want to say, I really respect Pew deciding not to do that because I also struggled with that in writing the book is, is just that constant reminder that we can start off with these labels that kind of put us in categories that we all have these familiar characteristics, values, historical markers that shape who we are and, and who we are yeah. with other people and common interests. But there's also something to be said about developmentally how we change. You can have for example, Gen X is tends to be pretty rebellious um, around music, and we shaped MTV and, mm-hmm. and videos, music videos, and shaped a lot of uh, music in the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, rebellious in some ways, but yeah. yet we grow out of some of those things in adulthood. We sh- we yeah. grow and change as we become adults. Yeah, I think you know. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll take a contrarian viewpoint. I'm fine with the labels. Um, Simply because I think, you know, I, I don't sit there and go, well, I, I go like for Gen X, all Gen X is this way. I don't think that way. But if somebody says I'm Gen X, you know, I could probably be like, I could, you know, I could go da 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 And they'd be like, oh, MTV. Yeah. And then you'd be like, you know what? Or they, you know, you mentioned remote control. You talk Kurt Loder. You talk. Organ yeah. Trail. When I go out Oregon and teach, trail. I say yeah. Organ Trail. And yeah. all of Gen or, X is like, yeah. yeah. It really depends. It's like you could sit there and go, so where were you when you were watching the Clinton testimony where you were like, what is going on in the world today? Yeah. You know, where were you? I was driving to Beck Middle School when the first President Bush said that he had just ordered airstrikes uh, and was kicking off Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Yeah. I remember exactly where I was to go, our nation is at war. 
I remember 9-11. I remember us staying yeah. up and sleeping on a futon because yeah. that's what we could afford. Yeah. Um, on September 11th, the evening of September yeah. 11th, 2001. To watch the news all night. With the news on all night on a cathode ray tube TV. And that's not to say we're old. Yeah. But if I try and tell that to somebody now, they're going to be like, huh, I bet that. Oh, okay. All right. And you're like, no, you. It's hard to communicate. So we have to actually, we have to hold sacred the pivotal global events that shaped people groups. Yeah. And I and the last thing I'll say, when I served with the Australians, you know, I and this isn't just like it's Gen X everywhere. When I served with the Australians and they start I started talking, you know, Vietnam means something to us in America. You can't that's a that word is loaded in our DNA, right? Um they have had their similar um uh I, I don't think it was Brian. I totally forgot exactly, but they had their sin. And once I started listening to the, 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 um, one of their historical events that was similar, um, I was like, holy cow. Like I had n- number one, I had no idea. Yeah. Cause I lived in America. Number two, now I realize you in your Australian defense force was shaped by an experience that you had. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I get to listen. So yeah. we have to, Maybe maybe it's not so much the generational labels, but what are the significant like historical par- markers, paradigm and- shifting mm-hmm. historical markers, which is why I'm so glad you begin the book with Bush's speech yeah. on 9-11 or after 9-11 yeah. on 9-14. And um, because it was we people don't understand it was not a presidential speech. Yeah, it was so much more beyond that for everybody that was sitting there going what do I do now? Yeah. 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 And so um, just to kind of recap a couple of things, because yeah. I'm tempted to go straight into Bush's speech and that's where we're definitely going to end up just to recap, you know, when I, when I teach this material, we talk about, you know, exactly what you said. Generational labels help us just find that common ground with other people who were shaped by these yes. very big moments. And yeah. so while it may start with your date of birth, mm-hmm. um, like like I said, you and I are kind of on the millennial line. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of understand some of them. You know, you mentioned the Clinton yeah. scandal. Yeah. That's something that millennials bring up a lot. Yeah. It was a formative thing that they yeah. remember shape, being shaped by yeah. just as much, maybe not just as much, but similar to how the Challenger yeah. exploded for Gen X. While we're that, sitting in third grade. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so these historical markers yeah. really shape, especially if they are happening in your formative years. Yeah. Um. So 9-11 was very much, mm-hmm. a, I think it shaped so many of us that can remember it, but yeah. especially in your formative years. So millennials mm-hmm. and Gen X definitely were shaped mm-hmm. in their adolescent to, to yeah. even a little bit younger than that. So there is your date of birth. There is definitely historical markers. And when I say historical markers, it's also about military specific historical markers. So when I ask a group, tell me about your military story and the military historical markers, there's different. Oh yeah. Um, It's not just 9-11. It is um, Black Hawk Down, Mm -hmm. or it is like some of these um, battles that have happened. It is remembering when we had funding and then suddenly didn't. Mm -hmm. There is these military historical markers that really have shaped us and shaped our culture. Mm-hmm. It also is about our parenting. Yeah. You and I were both raised by um, parents who really um, had the same values and 
parented us mm-hmm. as baby boomers. Um, and yet my cousin, Rudy and Richie, they're my aunt and uncle. They yeah. very much shaped um, my cousins as millennials. Yeah. So just even how your parents parented you mm-hmm. can definitely have you lean a little bit more yeah, towards you one talk generation military, When you talk military experiences, I was talking to a friend yesterday and we were talking about um, promotion rates right now for yeah. different for different MOSs. And, and they were pretty high for certain MOSs in different places just because retention is hard and recruitment is hard right now. And uh, and we were both going, oh, yeah, yeah. It was, we're at the same promotion rates we were back in like 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 or 7, 8, 9, 10 when we were like, hey, Lottie Dottie, everybody, we're, we're, guess what? You, you, you made it. You made it. You made it. You made it. Right. <laughs> and uh, and we mentioned we we're like, yeah, but we've been there before. We know how to handle this. Mm. And we also were able to go and we know what it's going to look like in two or three years. How it's going to change. How it's going to change because we lived through it. Yeah. And it's people going, no, 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 I lived through that. It's like back in the 90s when they went through a reduction in force. People going, oh, no, no, I lived through the riff. Yeah. I lived through the wholesale. I lived through the pink slips. I lived through that. Yeah. And they can tell this is what it felt like. So much wisdom to yes. share. And yeah. also... Being able to reflect back on on patterns mm-hmm. that when money goes up, money goes down. Mm-hmm. You know, when the force builds up, yeah. the force uh, minimizes too, right? Yeah. And so, so much wisdom there mm-hmm. to offer, which is a, another reason why being able to use these generational labels really yeah. helps with clarity in the yes. book. So yeah. that when you go into the office every day or wherever it is that you're, you're going, even mm-hmm. on a deployment, you can start to hear some of these historical markers or these shared values expressed by different generations. And it just hopefully will help you lead better because it opens your ears, opens your mind Mm -hmm. to um, what's really important to the person in front of you. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. that is unpacked in chapter one, Um, but you brought up um, George Bush's speech, um, the bullhorn speech that was just so powerful for all of us. And I thought we could just take a moment and I wanted to give you really an opportunity to talk Mm. about what um when we when I mentioned in the book ground level leadership and walking through the rubble, yeah. Um, I I talk about and in the bonus reading of chapter one, I share the actual clip of um, George Bush speaking. You just mentioned, you know, it wasn't necessarily a presidential speech. In fact, he had already delivered that yeah. presidential speech from behind the resolute desk. He had already um, given words at the cathedral, the national cathedral for those who are grieving. Yeah. But this was different. And you, and like you said, like we didn't know how to move forward. We had, you know, we had no memory. Speaking of generations, we had no memory of Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And that was the last time we'd been attacked like that on our mm-hmm. soil. So you're dealing with a nation who's in shock yeah. and not understanding what happened, mm-hmm. understanding how it could happen, how in the world, like what are we now, what era are we now living in where people would use planes yeah. as bombs? Well, with Pearl Harbor, um, and historians could probably like rip this all apart. We were in a, a period of kind of isolationism while we're also preparing the military industrial complex. We're providing and supplying while Europe is at war. So there are other parts of the world that are in this massive war, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden we get pulled into it as we've been trying to stay out of it, yeah. right? And that was like war was going on and then it came to our shores. On 9-10, there was nothing. Right. Right. At 9-10, there was peace. At 9-10, 
the the you know national policy was going to be focusing on education. It's why Bush was reading a book in an elementary in an school. elementary school because that's where we we're going. That's this is where America is going. We we're going to invest like, and all of a sudden, it takes this hard right turn in a and it shatters. Like nobody even had a concept of terrorism. Like the last time had been homegrown terrorism with Timothy McVeigh. And before that, there was a failed, not failed, but there was there was a bomb that had gone off at the bottom of the trade centers, um, I think in a truck. Before then, there wasn't any like, we didn't have a mailbox to put this incoming information into. Yeah. And so we were all, the entire nation was living a trauma. And as much as people can't understand it now, Google Congress singing God Bless America, wholesale, Republican, Democrat, Independent, everybody all together. That was where we were at. At that moment in time, the entire country is traumatized. The entire country has their news on. There was no internet to speak of. Well, and there I was, was just thinking that, you know, when I was doing research on on that chapter. Yeah. Uh, what was fascinating is the internet had just started and was just taking off, but it was, they had to strip all of the images and videos and pictures of what was happening on 9-11 off the webs, off the internet, because the internet was breaking with everybody trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, you know, 9-11 broke the, the internet in yeah. the beginning. Oh, by the way, there was no streaming. Yes. There was no was just the news. There was no TiVo. There wasn't like, well, I'll I'll TiVo this and I'll go or back YouTube. and watch it. YouTube. There was if you weren't watching live TV, you didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And cell phones were just kind of beginning. Just kind of beginning yeah. and the if there at all. The telecommunication industry could barely handle the level of communication that was going on. So you have to conceptualize that's where we're at, like mass chaos very little knowledge of what's happening. Yeah. Very little information saturation other than you're sitting and watching your TV. And then to be glued to that live moment, everybody was wondering, like, what are we going to do? I mean, take these two massive buildings that it was it was even impossible to conceptualize Um what was actually happening in New York? I mean, the people that lived in New York at that time had a whole nother experience, experience yeah. right? It was hard to conceptualize how big those piles of rubble were. Yeah. It was hard to conceptualize what they were doing day in and day out. And thank God for people like John Stewart that still advocate for those people that were working on the pile yeah. um, and making sure that they get taken care of. But you think back to that moment of like, okay, that was the galvanizing moment. Yeah. And sometimes it just takes that tiny little bit of, I see you. Yeah. I see you. And that's what I think Bush did that day. Oh, absolutely. And the more I like, just thought about, um, and I, I think what really got me hooked on this one, this, I mean, obviously I had a personal memory of it, but yeah. um, if, if anybody's listening, if you've not joined masterclass, it's one of my favorite things yeah. to, you can learn so much from so many people um, with their subscription and, and they have a presidential series. And George Bush was talking about mm. his own personal experience of these different speeches that he was giving. And he talked about in his masterclass, 
how he at first took that bullhorn and started to say what he had already said in the National Cathedral and realized like this was not working. This is not yeah, yeah. what the people needed to hear. This was a different, it, it called for a different response. Yeah. People were angry. People were exhausted. People were um, burned out from working. They were confused. They, they had all these feelings. Mm -hmm. And in this mm -hmm. one candid moment when his bullhorn isn't working and someone yeah. says, I can't hear you. He shifts and he just answers and he says, I can hear you. Yeah. And it just, everybody erupted. And he even talks about in the masterclass that he just, he realized in that moment they needed to hear something different. That is the most painful place to be is to feel voiceless. Yeah. When you walk into a doctor's office and you feel like they haven't listened. When you walk into a counseling session, when you're talking to a teacher, when you're talking to somebody that has authority that should because of their place, their role or responsibility or whatever, whatever, whatever they're at, they should be able to help. And you walk in there and they don't listen and, and a person feels voiceless for somebody to go, you have a voice and I hear it and people feel seen it. It is the S it is the foundation of humanity. And it is the thing that makes us do the most amazing things in the world when we recognize humanity and when we see that others are dehumanizing others, that righteous indignation that comes up, that wells up inside somebody that says, no, 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 no. That is not how we treat humans. Yeah. That's why when we see things like war crimes, we go, no, 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 no. That's why we make rules about war, because we're like, look, we're going to have to do this. We're, we're going to have to kick your butt. But in the midst of doing this, this is the line that's too far. And we all are going to agree we're not going to do this. This in, this indignifies humanity. And so for him to say, I hear you. Yeah. I see you. Oh, and by the way, soon the people that knock this down, they're going to hear from all of us. Yeah. And it is us. Yeah. It's not they're going to hear from me as the leader. Yeah. They're going to hear from us because it was, we're going to get through this together. I see that that's where we are as a culture. After two decades of, yeah. of war, is tired, is exhausted, has their own rubble of their family they're trying to oh, rebuild, yeah. their marriages mm. they're trying to to bring back together and, and invest in, um, roles that they're trying to refigure out their physical well-being um, we're seeing military yes the physical um complexity of of doing time for as much time, time. yeah doing time but seeing their 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 bodies break down and yeah. now we're having even military kids are struggling with mental health mil mental health issues and yeah. so what does it mean for a leader to walk among the rubble what does it mean for a leader oh, I can tell to you. see um, the current state of our force and lead in light of that. So I can tell you, I, um, and it's one of the things that military leaders get, get, uh, get rated on is presence. And it's not just when you walk into a room, do you command presence, but do you have a presence that inspires? Do you have a presence that when you show up, people go, I feel good. I feel like there's a way ahead. Like I don't feel alone anymore. Like, I feel like this person, this person, these group of people, they're going to lead us out of this. They're going to walk us out of the hell that we just accidentally walked into, stumbled into, or was forced upon us. That person is going to inject their presence and we're going to figure this out. And that little bit of hope, you know, inspiration, 
to inspire is literally to breathe life into people. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about suicide prevention, I'm like, well, we could prevent suicide or we could inspire. Yeah. We could breathe life into people, but you can't breathe life into people if you don't know what's going on with them. Yeah. I think the military is really good at teaching leaders how to execute, how to execute leadership. And I think that my challenge, I think this is what you're challenging people as well to do is to just pause before you execute. Yeah. Like just pause and think about the person that's in front of you and whether or not they are asking you to execute just yet. Yeah. There are times that I, I think that as leaders, we have to just move forward and we need to hope that people are following and that that requires trust. It requires a relationship established. And I get to that in the book. Yeah. But I think initially for now, it's about how do you pause for a second and thinking on the bullhorn speech, Mm -hmm. it was, it was Bush having that moment to go, what I was going to say isn't going to work here. Yeah. Who is in front of me and what do they actually need to hear? Right. Yeah. And who do they need me to be? Yeah. It's one of my favorite phrases that I use all the time now is who can I best be for you right now? Yeah. And getting that information before I launch into doing what I think I should do. Yeah. And so I think the the book is really about how do you pause? How do you see the person in front of you in light of their story? And the most successful leaders that I've ever met in my life are ones that figure out what is the connective tissue that I have with this person that's in front of me. Yeah. And how do I draw that close? I've seen people that walk up there and they're like, so, hey, where are you? Who are you? Where are you from? Da, 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 da. And they ask the same three questions. Yeah. And then they just go on with whatever their spiel is. And people are like, okay, cool. Roger got it. Like, and everybody has a story about that, that those kind of leaders where you're like, yeah, they, they don't listen. Or they have somebody that's like, so tell me about this. Tell me about that. And then they find this connective tissue, you know, and it may be, where did we serve in a similar place? Yeah. Like, you know, we start looking at, you look at combat patches, nowadays and you're like oh tell me when you when were you with fourth infantry division oh you were at hood or you were at carson back when it was hood you know tell me what connective tissue do we have and then how do i like pull on it so it draws us closer so you know that i see you yeah that i'm not walking into this with my own agenda i'm walking in this to see you and we if you take that moment to pause the next moment of leadership is very easy. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things that drives me mad, um, because I've been on the receiving end of it and Mm -hmm. I've also watched it happen. Um, Mm -hmm. I obviously, I think I feel people's pain personally. And so when I see it happen, I just cringe. Mm -hmm. And that's when somebody genuinely has a problem that they're bringing to a leader and they are desperate. It could be mold in their housing. It could be food insecurity. It could be, it could sound like something very small, but if you just pause and listen, there's so much beneath the surface going on. And I see sometimes families will go to leaders or approach leaders and they'll just regurgitate like all of, all of the issues that they're having or something that might seem like a really small issue to someone else, but obviously they're really struggling Mm -hmm. with something. And I know that that's overwhelming for leaders. I know that if you have a lot of people that are coming to you, bringing problems that maybe you're, it's, it's not even something you can fix, but it's overwhelming to have somebody bring that emotion to you, bring that desperateness, bring whatever those, um, those big issues are. But I hope that the book really helps you slow down and, and understand, oh, this is 
a Gen Z that's bringing this issue to me. And Gen Z typically has these values that are really important to them. They're just now growing a young family and there's long childcare wait lists that maybe you didn't have, Mm -hmm. you know, in the beginning years after 9-11 where everything was plussing up and we had childcare every Saturday for four hours available to us that Gen Z is not getting access to right now. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to keep their family together. Or maybe it's a millennial family that was promised a set mm-hmm. of benefits that are coming in and now their kids are older and they're starting to to struggle and mm-hmm. they're struggling with the the work life balance mm-hmm. is not what they thought it was going to be and this is very important to them yeah, yeah, yeah. because they're looking out in the civilian market seeing how they could go get a job that's a 9 to 5 and have a better work life balance yeah and i'm not saying that all the other generations don't value um, work family balance, yeah. but they're willing to talk about it, stand mm-hmm. up for it and bring it to your attention more than older generations. I remember telling somebody about childcare and I was like, yeah. and, and we were laughing about it. I was like, yeah, it's like, we got my, when I was first deployed, my spouse got, I think it was 16, 16 hours, got 16 free hours of childcare each month. And they looked at me like, what? 16 free in addition to whatever I had scheduled. Yeah. Yeah. 16 yeah. free. And you could get it. Yes. Yeah. So. I mean, just the other day, you had a service member that uh, that you had never met before asked you for a ride because he didn't have a car. Yeah, yesterday. Right? And then you have bus routes now being talked about yeah. at Fort Cavazos, where so many of these service members who don't have cars or families that can't easily get to the grocery store or the commissary yeah. could now ride a bus. Like, it's a yeah. small decision with huge impact simply yeah. from Yeah, listening. I can ride a bus, which means I don't have to buy a, you know, a brand new car at 38% interest. Oh, and maybe if I teach you about saving and investing, you know, you don't have financial arguments in your family. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's all connected. That's the beauty of your book. Going back to that is that you show all of these things are interconnected. And so we've got to go back to the drawing board, clearly articulate the complexity of this problem and then bring in awareness with everybody that's involved Mm -hmm. to the table and go, Ooh, we all own a piece of this. Yeah. Because last I checked, it's national security and defense. Mm -hmm. I, I just kind of want to ask you, you are serving, yeah. you know, um, in and among the problem and, and also working with people yeah. every day. What would you say is the important thing for leaders to understand about the current state mm-hmm. of morale in our force today? So I'll say this for everybody. Um, there's a Ben Harper song called Better Way. It says, I believe in a better way. It says, Mara- says, life is sharp. It cuts at me like a knife. Everyone I know is in the fight of their life. And I believe there's a better way. Every human in front of you has a problem that they haven't told you about. Mm-hmm. Every human that you are interacting with, checking out through the grocery store, um, that is waiting on you at a restaurant, um, that is in a car in front of you or just cut you off in traffic, everybody has something they're dealing with. Whether it's a family of origin, whether it's something that just came up in their life, whether it's a medical issue, behavioral health issue, you name it, no human has a perfect life free from suffering, pain, hurt, distraction, chaos, whatever, right? As as you are interacting with everyone, just assume that there is something in the back of their mind that they're pushing down so that they can interact with you in that moment. Mm -hmm. So what I would say to leaders is pause and take the opportunity to humanize the person in front of you. I don't think it's a balance of the mission versus the people. 
I think as we balance the humanity of the people in the accomplishment of the mission, we make the mission happen better. Yeah. You fight harder for people you love, for people that you trust, for people that you go, you know what? You're worth dying for. And that's what we have to get to the place of. We understand one another in the military to literally say the phrase, you're worth dying for. Like I'm going to give up all my hopes, dreams, goals, and desires for the remainder of my life, breathe my last breath so that I can take care of you. That's the depth of trust, care, love, vulnerability, leadership that we all have to embody. But here's the beauty. When we all do that, we get so much more accomplished, so much faster, so much easier. And it's so much more enjoyable. We're like, isn't that because that's what we signed up to do to be a part of something bigger and greater and better than ourselves. And when we talk about younger generations, that's what they're longing for. They have an existential longing. Give me something to believe in. Yeah. You know, and when we go, hey, this is what we do on behalf of the nation and we we have to know that we we serve more than ourselves we serve we serve a, a something that um that's intangible that it's hard to describe but that is so beautiful to be a part of and when we do it right it is magic it is absolute magic and you stand there and you're like i can't believe we got to do this I can't believe we got to serve with these people that have changed and shaped our lives in beautiful ways that still do that. You're like, God, I love that person. Like I couldn't love, like they taught me to love more, but that's the family. Military Culture Shift podcast is sponsored by New Res and written and produced by me, author, speaker, and military clinical consultant, Corey Weathers. The closing credit song is Love Like There's No Tomorrow, written and performed by Army veteran Michael Trotter Jr. and his wife, Tanya, as War and Treaty. This is a supplemental leadership podcast for the book Military Culture Shift, the impact of war, money, and generational perspective on morale, retention, and leadership. Copies of the book can be purchased on Amazon, militaryfamilybooks.com, and your other favorite retailers. More information, including graphs, data, and other resources mentioned in the book, can be found on my website, coreyweathers.com. 